Red on Red.
Shane Malone with My Baby's Dead and St. Keelan with I'll Be a Fool for You. This is Red on Red, Cork's new music podcast, dropping every Wednesday evening via Cork's Red FM and redextra.ie. We're also available on Apple and Google Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. My name is Mike McGrath, Brian, and this week we're joined in studio by Cormac and Bill of returning alt folk outfit, Boa Morte. Lads, how's it going? Good, Mike. Thanks for thanks for having us. Very good. Thanks for having me. Um, first things first, brand new album, uh, Before There Was Air, coming out uh, September 27th, I believe, via Jarre du Nord. Uh, across CD, digital, I, I hear there's like a, this massive multi-platform release happening. Absolutely. Yeah, it, correct. Yeah, and uh, we're getting uh, 180 gram vinyl press as well. Ooh. And uh, actually, yeah, we've gone on pre-order with it. And it's amazing. Like even already, yeah. it's 80% vinyl being sold. Uh, you know, maybe 10% CD, 10% digital download, but on pre-order so far. So that's an interesting uh, yeah, breakdown. We've done, we've done the sound comparison. It sounds much, I mean, it sounds great on vinyl. Yeah. It really does. How do you find the response to yourselves uh, announcing, not a comeback necessarily, because it never is, you know, like a hiatus or what have you. It's just a matter of other things kind of coming in the way. How have you found the response to the third album and, and the news rather? Yeah, yeah. It's been, it's been encouraging so far. You know, it's probably... Probably we have a, a small but steady fan base from from the previous two albums, yeah. And they've gotten word of it at this stage, and there, there's a good degree of enthusiasm, which is which is heartwarming, I guess, because our output isn't exactly prolific, you know. So it's been when was the last album? 2010. 2010. by my reckoning. Yeah. So nine years. So um. So after so such a long gap, it's encouraging to see um a pretty warm welcome and a, a good degree of expectation, you know. So 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 far so good. Yeah. We'll talk about the new album in a bit more detail a little bit later on in the show. But first, you're celebrating your 20th anniversary this year. First of all, congratulations. Maybe take us back a little bit to how Boa Morte came together and that kind of snapshot of the scene as it was back in 1999, where maybe you're just before the real excesses of the Celtic Tiger, you know, and right before a lot of the venue shutdowns, etc. Talk to us a little bit about how that all came together. Um, I suppose we, I mean, we've known each other for a long time, going back to university days. And uh, we're hanging out in the Liberty, which was the center of the Cork music scene at the time. And so many bands came out of the Liberty. And um, I suppose we formed a couple of sort of noise bands or or grunge type bands. (laughs) Uh, Hubble was one of them. Uh, The Lemmings before that. The Lemmings before that. Was that for the video game? Uh, it wasn't. I don't know. Uh-huh. I don't know where the name came, came from. Um, but whatever. We probably had very limited success. We got you know played on fanning and all that kind of yeah. stuff in the Lemmings. And then Hubble produced. We did a couple of demos. Probably. A couple of demos. Yeah. Um, um, for Moy and Fiona Studios and for Moy. Yeah. Supported the Franks and all that that kind of stuff. Uh, played Henry's and um, so you know we a, you know nice degree of local success. Yeah. Very much in the kind of pavement sonic use. Yeah. Therapy, that kind of just noise, noisy guitars, basically, right? Your first EP released also in, ninth, I want to say, 2000, 2001? Something like that. Yeah, something like that. So I guess... Just well, not to... released, rather, was recorded in yeah. 2001, because there's a whole story when it comes to being signed by labels mm-hmm. and things not necessarily working out. Maybe take us through the process of writing and recording it and what happened next. Yeah, yeah. So maybe you could fill in the blanks, Cormac, but we... So we, we had that whole Lemmings, Hubble, noise, rock kind of era, let's say. But then in probably 98 into 99, mm. you know, we decided that we, we wanted, for whatever reason, to, to change tack a little bit and change course just to stimulate ourselves, I guess, a bit further. So that's when 
that's when Beaumorte was formed. And yeah, we we went to Dublin, I'm guessing in 98, probably, to, like that, yeah. and we recorded the uh, the Passenger Measure Time EP with, with Mark Carolyn. Mm-hmm. Um, who, who actually now is the sound engineer with Muse um, as, a, as a random yeah, aside. Another person to go on to greatness. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, um, and that, we, that, that, that EP um, was very much our calling card, I guess. We, we, we got it out there to uh, a, lot of, a lot of labels globally. And yeah. uh, we, we had a good degree of interest and it was Mood Food in the, in the US who were very much focused in the that kind of alt folk general area that that hooked onto it. Um, mm. Mood Food had Whiskey Town, uh, of whom Brian or Ryan Adams, Brian Adams, <laughs> <laughs> Ryan, uh, Ryan Adams was a member on the roster, and uh, yeah, they, they hooked onto it, and they basically funded the the recording of our first album proper. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But um, they kind of ran aground fairly lively. Maybe talk to us a little bit about kind of like had you any idea that things were about to happen or. Not really. I suppose there's a, I mean, geographical distance got in the way there, and we didn't really. Um, I suppose we didn't hear from Mood Food for a while, and there was no sign of the of the record coming out. So we and we we really didn't know that much about what was going on. Yeah, yeah, and um, they did, they'd invested a good bit of money in us. You know, they we had a producer called Daniel Presley. He'd worked with the likes of the Breeders, who came over, spent weeks with us here, yeah. uh, we used to practice uh, above a milking parlor up in Blarney but, um, belonging to the dad of, of our drummer and the, so we had this guy out of New York City and he was a fairly cool cool guy but uh, actually we got to know him really well so he ended up spending a lot of time in a dirty milking parlour loft yeah. kind of fine tuning the songs with us working on orchestration and arrangements with us and right. that was a huge learning just having that dedicated time with somebody with his level of experience and then he went hunting studios all around Ireland and we eventually settled on Sun Studios in Dublin um, because he was insistent that it had to be recorded in a, a two-inch tape deck with analog preamps Oof. and analog everything and straight straight to tape. And those uh, would have started going extinct at the time. Yeah, yeah, were, yeah. 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 Yeah, so Cormac, Cormac spent time in a car with him, yeah. visiting we studios all over the country. We drove for West Cork for a week looking at different studios because we, we had this ideal of recording in West Cork, but... It really wasn't to be, was it? I mean, yeah. we needed the pro studio in Dublin. Yeah. A lot of the tape decks yeah. were just in really bad order. And uh, he was extremely fussy, so we ended up going to Dublin for a number of weeks um, mm. recording the album. So, you know, they, they easily spent a good five-figure sum between paying him, paying for the studio time, uh, paying, you know, mixing, mastering, all that kind of stuff. Um, so they invested a lot in it. And then... Then they, Mark, Mark, Mark Carolyn came in and finished the album, actually, when we'd... When we'd broken free of it yeah yeah he yeah, came yeah. in and mixed it basically Move Food sat in it for a long time it became apparent then that they weren't going to release it because they went bankrupt uh, but they refused to release they actually refused to release the, the tapes back to us did they think that there was going to be some sort of like collateral or other value to it in the long run without it being released in the first place yeah they wanted Especially us for to a buy, debut. buy the tape back yeah they absolutely mm. wanted us to buy it back and uh, we ended up getting a, a music uh, intellectual property rights lawyer on board mm. to go head to head with their um, intellectual property rights lawyer, and eventually they gave in. And it was it was more about just you know um, sticking it out, um, and they just got fed up of the uh, of waiting basically in the end. And we ended up getting the rights for for the album back um, in our own hands at that stage. And then we were back at the start 
putting it out flogging to, it to flogging it out to record companies around the place to see if, if there'd be any takers but at least we had a, a fully finished album at yeah, this stage right? yeah. there's about four years between the band coming together and the release of the first record obviously you know the release of an EP will keep people going etc as well as regular gigging activity how did you manage to kind of keep everything afloat with this legal battle ongoing uh, managing and just generally keeping the momentum um, up well, as you may have spotted, we don't move that quickly, <laughs> really. And uh, we, I mean, we, we actually did quite a few gigs in those times between 1998 and 2002. And the lobby was really uh, going, was very busy. And we did quite a few gigs and, uh, in the lobby, actually, in that time. If you look at the lobby book, mm. you can see the listings. So um, I suppose we, we had something to, to aim for, Um in releasing it through uh, Shoeshine uh, eventually. Hmm. Um, so it seemed to happen quicker than it actually did. Yeah, looking back in the notes, now that you mentioned four years, Mike, it doesn't seem it like doesn't that seem to us. It doesn't seem like right, that but, to uh, us, yeah. Yeah, yeah but, but um, yeah, it, it was... It, I mean, the story of it, of Shoeshine picking up on it. We'll talk about that a little bit later on, but I suppose maybe talk to us a little bit about, you know, wrangles aside, because that's what people will remember and that's what people kind of mm-hmm. still talk about. Mm-hmm. It still gets mentioned in press releases or what have you. Just talk to us, I suppose, about the writing of the songs in the first place, because it's one thing to, you know, deal with like a US producer coming through and seeing the milking parlor and whatever else. But when it came down to it, etc. Talk to us a little bit, I suppose, about transitioning from that first EP to fleshing out everything to your first album. Just what were your thoughts, uh, your feelings, your ideas going into an LP? Well, I mean, the, the reason we did the EP with um, Mark Carolyn was because he'd worked with Jubilee All Stars, so it was a, a band that we really liked from Dublin. Uh, we liked their sound and there was quite a big um, old country scene in Ireland at the time um, um, and in Dublin in particular so we decided to work with, with Mark Carolyn that sort of formulated a sort of a sound and an, and a, uh, an aesthetic and um, I suppose we were listening to a lot of Bonnie Prince Billy and people like that mm-hmm. uh, Silver Jews um, and uh, we um so we were starting to write these sort of slower songs um, that um, fitted this sort of very slow old country sort of scene that we were sort of fitting into. Mm. And um, the typical writing process is that either myself or Paul, as another writer, would, would write songs at home and bring them into the band room. We'd um, put them through the Beaumorte machine and, uh, and come up with arrangements and stuff like that. So, I mean, I suppose we are other bands we were, in, we were influenced by at the time were Lamb Chop, who were just really form, doing some great stuff. Um, I'm trying to think back. <laughs> mm. But uh, we, were really in, we were really influenced by that sort of aesthetic, really slow, uh, slow-moving uh, folk, old folk music. Um, and I suppose that we, we, the three uh, songs we recorded for the EP uh, ended up on the album, and new, uh, new versions of them ended up on the album. So we just um, we filled out the rest of the album quite quickly, actually. Yeah, from exactly. And, uh, I think it grew kind of organically. It's yeah. not as if we went in with a, a preformed idea that we want every song to be slow, yeah. <laughs> and we want uh, uh, we want to create a certain mood. But you know, as we layered on the various elements of of the songs, it, it kind of a sound developed over time. Mm. We ended up, you know, bringing on board some additional musicians then in terms of a. Uh, strings uh, and there's a cello player who played on that album Louise O'Flynn who still plays with us with us actually uh, we use some we use violins uh, we used we use brass 
we've got this multi-instrumentalist called Dermot McDermott uh, uh, who, who's played in a, a number of you know pretty pretty successful Dublin bands like the Jimmy Cake and so forth mm. and he, he, he ended up doing a lot of stuff uh, that got included clarinet and so forth on the on the first album so it's really true spending time on the songs ourselves working thinking carefully about the arrangements you know pulling in other musicians um, mm. and I think uh, I think if anything that time um, between uh, releasing the EP and ultimately when the first album got released allowed us probably time we wouldn't have had otherwise to mature the sound and develop it a, a bit more organically than we might have otherwise when we come back we'll talk a little bit about the the pickup of the album by a label and I suppose really the effect of that mass exposure that it received on the band and how you kind of perceive things going forward but first we're going to go to some more tunes but coming up on September 21st in Dali the old pav on Carey's Lane Dublin instrumental duo by Curious are performing in their first headline show in the city I believe Coming up, we have two bands from that billing on September 21st in Dali. We have Ten Past Seven, who are making a rare live appearance. Of course, Kerry's famed Bog Prog Power Trio. Uh, but first, we have Northside Youngfellas' God Alone with Feeling Altic, a tune that we premiered last week on the Red on Red podcast, recorded live at the Paranoid Pit at Fred Zeppelin's, here on Red on Red. This song's called Feeling Altic.
cracks of reality. Pain stories, sobs, strikes me, cause me to the pit on fire. Cause the darkness is pain in my stomach. It's like a black wall, like a fucking sun. And I'm the food that it all.
Ten Past Seven with Johnston's Cows, part of the lineup on September 21st in Dali on Carey's Lane in Cork City. Acting support for By Curious, Dublin instrumental duo. Tickets, 10 euro kickoff at half six at Dali. This is Red on Red, Cork's new music podcast, and we're still joined in studio by Cormac and Bill from Boa Morte. And before the jump, we were talking a little bit about how the band came together, your initial excursions, and your wrangles with your first label. Before we went to Tunes, we kind of left it at being picked up by Shoeshine Records, uh, the label run by the drummer from Teenage Fan Club. Talk to us a little bit, I suppose, about once the album beat was done and was kind of played about locally a bit, talk to us a little bit about the shopping process to labels, because that's something that's maybe a bit lost now with all the changes in the industry, bands going it alone, etc. Just for listeners that might not be so familiar with the process of sh- label shopping, as it were. Talk mm-hmm. to us about how things came together and what it took to get the deal done. Well, I mean, back in those days, obviously, there, no, there were no links or online links, so everything was physical copy. So we did a load of CDRs of the album and sent them, just basically sent them with press releases off to different uh, different labels. And um, so we, we we got some interest and a few people um, got back to us. But the, the, the story goes that Francis McDonald was recording with Teenage Fan Club at the time. He got the, got the, the CD and played it during a recording session in the, at, on the desk. So I suppose it was going through some fairly heavy hi-fi equipment and it's probably sounded pretty good. So, um, so the uh, supposedly uh, the uh, teenage fam club, the rest of the band liked it as well, and uh, persuaded him to check us out and, and eventually signed us to the label. You know, it was a it was great to get that um, recognition because he had some uh, sort of up and coming acts on the label and uh, very good distribution of the label as well across the UK and some worldwide distribution as well. So it was great to get on a label that actually had distribution across UK and Ireland. It got us into record shops and into magazines and stuff. Having been kind of fit up with a good distribution network, and I suppose what kind of stands out to me when I kind of look at, or when anybody kind of searches up the first record, is just the trail of press that it receives. Yeah. Um, everything from The Enemy putting on rave reviews to Hot Press featuring it on you know an all-timers list. Yeah. Um, talk to us, I suppose, about that whirlwind of press attention that the album got kind of how did you feel about all of this praise just being volleyed at you right at right at this time after you'd been through so much and just kind of how you felt about the whole process how it maybe kind of changed your perspective on the process of releasing something and putting you know giving something to the public yeah yeah it's a good it's a good question not something necessarily spent too much time thinking about but i i think at the time it, it 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 just seemed to it just all seemed to happen very easily almost you know and it, it certainly speaking personally it kind of took me a little bit by surprise it was great kind of um, validation I guess to get signed up so quickly um, second time round um, we really didn't have a clue what to expect when the reviews started coming in and when the reviews started coming in and they were universally positive I, I must admit I was surprised we probably en- underestimated. Maybe the uh, to some extent the, the 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 quality of the songs, the quality of the recording as well. I think that that really helped. It really stood up. That Daniel Presley, you know, insisted on you know all of that vintage gear, and he got a really smooth analog sound to the whole album, um, which helped, right? Um, but yeah, as as the reviews came in, um, it it 
it I must admit it, it kind of took me by surprise but came very naturally as well at the same time because I guess we had we we did have a lot of confidence that there was something in the songs and there was something in the uh, in terms of the quality of the album as a, as an entity that we were very very happy with so it was good to it was good to get that re- reaffirmed but this was also at a time where maybe the music press in the UK and Ireland you know still very heavily print based online only mm-hmm. starts to come through by about 2002 and there's still somewhat of the rock and roll myth making to being in a magazine that you know you're kind of your perception changes almost when you're or the perception of your band changes when you're on the enemy as opposed to maybe today where music press is a bit more fragmented kind of what are your thoughts now on the music press yeah i guess the big difference is 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 the whole the whole online internet element um and the the skew towards you know blogs um uh, online uh, YouTube channels, uh, podcasts such as such as this one, it 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 it, it, it is uh, it has been a paradigm shift because back then getting a review in um, Uncut, Mojo, Enemy, uh, Hot Press, whatever that was it. You know, you got a great review there. That that's what everybody read to get their to inform themselves on what's coming through from a musical perspective, and you you know you were able to build a, a following pretty quickly. You know, we did a UK tour. With, with some of our bandmates uh, as part of the album launch and you know we were stunned to find that there was you know a couple of hundred people turning out to see us in places like Hull and Glasgow and you know wh- where, where did these people come from but they, they came from um, that a cohort of people that relied on the, the magazines uh, for their for their musical direction now, nowadays it seems to me that it's it's far more dispersed the number of the number of uh, musical or the number of I guess uh, um, nodes where people go to get their musical information is absolutely far more dispersed than it was in the past. So actually, in some ways, I think it's become harder to find an audience because people are relying on so many different uh, types of outlets. I think probably the, the volume of music coming through towards those those uh, outlets is is far greater as well. Um, so I think it's, if anything, and, and Cormac, mm. I'm not sure what you think about it. We, it's not something we've necessarily talked about, but I think... It's probably harder to find that audience now, which is kind of ironic, given that in some ways it's a lot easier because it's easier to put stuff online. It's easier to get stuff to blogs. Um, But because of that dispersal effect, I I think it's possibly become harder to reach people. What do you reckon then of the idea of some of like the restoration of some sort of like accepted seal of approval like Peel would have been or like Fanning would have been or like certain music journalists would have been like, do you think they reside on YouTube or in podcasts, Mm -hmm. etc.? I suppose the, I mean Pitchfork at one point was 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 the go-to um, review source for a lot of people, and uh, uh, I suppose it's going to change, isn't it? It changes mm. on a regular basis. There's some uh, YouTube channels that are quite informative. I mean, personally, I still rely on the magazines as sort of catalogs of what's of the new releases, and I I still look at Uncut and, and mm. look flick through and see the type of thing I like. Now I won't like a lot of it. But I can sort of read the reviews and decide what, what I might check out. And I suppose Spotify is very useful because it allows you to check out a load of stuff. Mm. Um, and then I do force myself to buy to buy the things that I mm. that I enjoy to support the artists. You know. Absolutely. Certainly the, certainly the financial model has changed hugely. So off the back of all the success then, to where you end up touring the major towns in the UK off the back of this critical acclaim, it takes eight years to get to album number two, The Dial Waltz. Maybe talk to us a little bit about kind of 
what changes were happening in the music industry kind of after the first album cycle CD begins tailing off downloading starts happening and all of a sudden shopping to labels becomes a little bit different I mean well, obviously what we should have done is really moved with a lot of moment, the momentum behind us from the first album we should have really I suppose moved quickly and you know I mean but I suppose life gets in the way sometimes and you um, we, we weren't really in a position to go full time into the music and tour tour the album more extensively so I suppose you know in some ways we missed a crucial window of opportunity but in other ways as Bill said earlier that you know you have a lot more time to work on the songs uh, now of course we took it to the extreme <laughs> but um, but it certainly gave us a lot of time to work on the songs and work through new arrangements for the second album we actually ended up recording the second album around maybe 2006 or 7 yeah so it was actually recorded within a couple of years uh, <laughs> it was still it took four years to record it mm. um, to get around to recording it um, so I suppose we let things drift a bit but, but I mean we're, we've, we're all you know in jobs in professional jobs and, and mm. you know we just it's not like we were full time musicians so uh, time just drifted a bit and uh, we we were able to to really polish the songs though a lot for the second album uh, but I suppose we did let the grass grow under our feet a bit. Yeah, uh, yeah, a bit, yeah. And, and, and to your point then, Mike, I guess the, the, the scene in the music industry probably changed a lot in that period. It's when online really came to the fore. Um, you know, a lot of the independent record labels that were probably consolidated a lot. Um, a lot mm. of them folded. You know, we've talked about Move Food, Shoeshine, who we were signed to. They, they, they started really slowing their output. They contracted a lot. Uh, yeah. a, a, a lot because people were, at the time... Uh, MySpace was was kind of taking off, and it, it, that in itself, around 2004, five, six, uh, kind of really changed. That that's what really brought a lot more music online. Uh, brought the kind of whole DIY element, uh, the bedroom bedroom bands uh, gave them an audience, and suddenly the amount of music that people had to listen to, either on CD or online, just just exploded. Really, you know, uh, in that period of time. So uh, I guess we. We were kind of, as Cormac said, we were working away through that, building up some new songs at our own pace. But when it came to the recording or the release then of the second album and, and shopping them around, we probably found that a lot of the, the people we would have shopped around to had were really nervous about the model and signing bands and signing records. Whereas mm. back in, you know, we got signed twice for the first album. Yeah. We couldn't. We couldn't get signed for the second album, even though we would say that the music, the quality of the recordings was, was equally as good, right? Yeah, well, um, I think, because I think record labels were extremely nervous yeah. about the old contracting a band I think they type could model, see, right? They could see the change in the financial landscape. And when we released the first album, you could sell enough copies for the record label to make their money back quite yeah. easily and then make mm -hmm. a profit. Whereas by the time we got around to releasing the second album, you're really looking at a different model, which involves a lot of touring, a lot of live shows, real you know, um, bands that are full-time plugging away, you know, on, on tour for yeah. 300 days a year. Yeah. And so we, we, we really weren't that type of band, so it didn't quite suit us <laughs> anymore. Yeah. You then took the decision to self-release The Dial Walt um, amid all of this tumult and all of this happening in the music business at the time. Maybe talk to us a little bit about your experiences with being your own bosses, so to speak. Hmm. How did you find that experience? Yeah, it, 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 it was actually okay looking back on it. I guess we are lucky in that we all had full-time jobs. Uh, we were probably weren't in a position where we necessarily had to recoup at all, but we certainly were interested in recouping as much as possible. Mm. Um, 
And really, our, our primary motivation was just to get the music out there in front of people and to, to make sure that, you know, we still had it to some degree, right? And we want, probably wanted that, that validation. We were very happy with the album ourselves. Um, so to try to maximize the exposure, you know, we did, we did sign up Cargo as a distributor. We did that ourselves for UK and Ireland just to get, it, get physical copies out there. I think back then, in terms of getting it out digitally, however, the infrastructure um, really wasn't as mature as it is now to allow a band like us to, um, to, to get stuff out there and get it widely made available digitally. We, we went through a, you know, a distri- distribu- digital distribution company in the US called CD Baby, and they were quite good. They also did some physical distribution. But the band camp was really immature at that stage, and, yeah. and now that is a model. Uh, which can generate, you know, okay revenues for bands to um, to sell digital and physical copies of their albums. That didn't really exist in a very meaningful way back in 2010 when we were trying to get it going. So we were kind of caught in, in a kind of a pivot point, I guess, mm-hmm. between the physical model and the digital model, um, which resulted in probably the album not getting uh, uh, the degree of uh, exposure and sales that we would have liked. So even though Cargo distributed physically across you know all the major record shops in UK and Ireland people weren't really buying physical even they were probably buying less than they are even now you know back then mm-hmm. because it was cool to get the digital download to download your mp3 you know um, even though Spotify wasn't there there was a lot of piracy going on um, and whatever and it almost so, seems quaint to talk about mp3 now doesn't it yeah it does yeah yeah, yeah it does yeah it's amazing uh, so it's um, so yeah it was at a funny pivot point in terms of the whole industry and I think we were kind of victims uh, you know not wanting to sound like victims but uh, I think as a result of that it probably didn't get the kind of exposure that we would have liked to see it get you know we got it we got it reviewed in Uncut and Mojo and so forth it got really good reviews but after those reviews not a whole lot else happened in terms of um, in terms of sales and so forth right Talk to us a little bit then about the creative process behind it because as you mentioned a big part of it was validation a big part of it was proving to yourselves that quote unquote you still had it over the course of the time it took to rehearse, record and release the whole thing. Maybe talk to us a little bit about how the process differed between the first album and the second album, kind of what you had brought forward, what your inspirations were. <laughs> Funnily enough, not a whole lot changed in, in terms of the creative process. And um, I suppose through a lack of imagination, <laughs> we brought back uh, Daniel Presley. I mean, we got on so well with him as a, as a producer that we actually, he was living in Paris at the time, so... He came in to produce the second album, and we were just really comfortable working with him. And uh, we knew that the quality, sound, the uh, quality of the recording would be spot on. So we uh, worked with Daniel again in uh, the same studio and did, went through the same process, you know. And um, I mean, in terms of writing the songs, we took the same same sort of route. Um, I think we probably had we focused more on orchestrations for the second album a bit more. Um, and um, you know in some ways it was really quite a similar process you know orchestration in terms of you know being in a room and three or four people together etc and you know putting together the bones of a song Mm. maybe for those that aren't familiar with the process maybe talk to us a little bit about orchestration and where big sweeping string sections and mm. other complementary presences start to enter into the creative process. How is that idea articulated in in, 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 it, in its very first iterative stages? Well, I mean, what uh, the thing I mean, the thing I like about us is that we have a sort of a sound. We have a so we have a way of playing the bass. The drummer is very distinctive. 
So we have a sort of a sound that is the, the four of us playing in a room. And what we tend to do is work with that as the fundamental basis of what we do and then keep adding layers to it and adding orchestration and leaving uh, gaps, if you like, for the orchestration to, to little pieces of the soundscape uh, where they can go. But really, we, we, we come up with it together, actually, so that the basic song is written uh, by one of us and then we come in and arrange the song as a band and we, one of us will say, hey, hang on, I've got this great sound. Mm. For the last album, it was a synth sound. It'll go here and it'll fill out the sound in this area. And then somebody would have an idea for a, a sort of an ascending string line. And sort of you'd hear it in your head. Um, and it sort of all fitted into place. Mm. Um, more recently, we've we've been... and, and we, do, we do tend to multi-track um, to do some demos in the, in the band room uh, so that we actually piece it out before we go into the studio. Yeah. Uh, so we do work quite a bit on the orchestrations, of course. I think so, yeah. And, yeah. Uh, you know, we, we probably meddle a lot with, with song structure. You know, we don't go for the verse, chorus, verse, chorus, middle eight, chorus, end kind of thing very much. And just by having that kind of looser um, kind of structure probably lends itself to to growing bits and pieces and, and, and letting songs meander and find their own course. Um I, I think we were conscious after the dial waltz that while we were very happy with the album that you know it was very two guitars uh bass drums with with some embellishments and we wanted to try something differently something different for for the third album more maybe more complex arrangements a broader um palette in terms of the instruments that we used so i think that that was the big difference in terms of orchestration i think between album two and album three so we, over the past, I guess, five years, we've spent mm. a lot more time um, working on different elements, different soundscapes to maybe what we had in the first in the first two albums. We'll talk a little further about the creative process behind album number three, Before There Was Air, which is available on September 27th via Jardinor uh, across digital and physical. We've got a pair of core K-pop artists that have released recently. First, we have Jar Jar Jr. with Earthed, the magnificent jazzy finisher to his most recent EP, Free Parking on Sundays. And we have Gap Tooth with Overdue, an instrumental single of his that was recently reissued across digital platforms after doing some time on SoundCloud and the like. This is Jar Jar Jr. with Earthed, here on Red on Red. Thank you. 
Gaptooth with Overdue here on Red on Red, still in studio with Cormac and Bill from returning Leaside Alt Folk Troubadours, Boa Morte. Of course, album number three on the way out, September 27th. Before the break, we were just talking a little bit about the orchestration process for records and that segged nicely into the creation of album number three, which is really not heavier, but allows for more of space for that kind of thing to Mm. breathe. In, in your songs I suppose by album number three you're already kind of set in your ways you know what you're about etc maybe talk to us a little bit about the concept behind uh, Before There Was Air how it came together what the process was like this time around and again even if it didn't change so much you kind of moved into a much different studio environment even if there were some familiar faces involved I guess again the process probably as, as we alluded to earlier probably didn't change too dramatically but we were conscious that we just wanted to expand our, our soundscape um, somewhat, um, you know. So, you know, in terms of Cormac and and Paul bringing songs to to the group and us developing them, that that really didn't change dramatically. But we did probably consciously decide to stretch ourselves a little bit in terms of just working more on the orchestration and arrangements, bringing more elements into them, uh, bringing more sounds into them. Um, so, on that resulted, I guess. And that was probably over the course of a few years again, yeah. you know, yeah. we tend to move slowly at this stuff. But it, it, it resulted in us probably using, you know, more drones, more guitar effects, um, uh, more synths, just, I guess, more elements, I guess, than we than we had considered in the past. Um, so yeah. uh, and, and then, you know, it's one thing doing that in the studio and doing it on four track or eight track or whatever, or doing it in the practice room on four track and eight track. Um, 
but but we 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 did more of that probably this time than we had in the past. Yeah. So I think when we went into the studio eventually, uh, we were probably more comfortable with what we wanted the end result to sound like than than maybe we had been in the past. I think so. I mean, in the the, the previous albums, we had we really stuck to an acoustic aesthetic, if you like. So we we had harmonium rather than having a synthesizer. We'd play a har- harmonium, uh, or we'd mm-hmm. play a piano. Whereas this time we said, right, all bets are off. We can use the digital technology of the studio, which we hadn't really had at our disposal in the past. We can bring in a synth, and we we used to pra- we practiced, started practicing with a synth, and it was a Juno Juno One Hundred Six. So making making drones as we're playing and arranging the songs influenced the sort of soundscape a lot more. And then we used the studio to our advantage as well hmm. by being able to cut cut up pieces and. Doing things that we couldn't have done on tape, which was mm. a long time ago. But mm. uh, so we we changed the process subtly. Yeah, and I think I, that's reflected in the sound. I think through that time as well, our our probably our listening patterns ourselves had probably developed a good bit as well. You know, Cormac, you'd always been into Brian Eno and the ambient stuff. You know, but more of us got in, got into the likes of of John Hopkins. Um, we were influenced by some other stuff like you know the John D and Alex Rice Boy Sleeps album. Mm. Um, you know, so um, more thoughtful, um, premeditated approach to orchestration and arrangement became part of became part of what we did. We weren't afraid to let songs ramble on for seven or eight minutes necessarily. Are you going to see John Hopkins at Dali as part of Sounds from a Safe Harbor happening next month? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. If it wasn't, if he wasn't sold out, you know, so. You know, there's always ways and means. There's always going to yeah, be yeah, somebody yeah. with a ticket yeah. going last yeah, minute, yeah. etc. Exactly. So yeah, we're gonna, keep an eye on your Facebook event pages, you know. <laughs> I think we'll get to Sam Amadon as well, Efter Clang as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so going to try and get to you as much good. as possible, I guess. Right? Good. There's a fair amount happening yeah. over the course of, of, of those couple of days at venues around Cork City. But now that the third album is all finished up with, as you mentioned, like an expanded sonic palette, you know, exploring both old and newer influences in a whole bunch more detail. Um, always a weird one to ask bands because you can never listen to your own material the same way you listen to somebody else's because you're so familiar with every single aspect of it but how do you feel about Before There Was Air as a finished piece now that you've heard Masters or have been sitting on them for a while or what have you talk to us a little bit about kind of just that experience of listening to something that you created as a thing that is now in the world Yeah, I mean I think we're very happy with it obviously and um, we you know, it's difficult to be critical of, of your own work, especially when you've heard it quite a few times through the mixing, mastering process and, and so on. You know, But hearing it all together, I think we're really pleased with how it's turned out. I mean, as, a, as an actual album that fits together, and, a, and maybe an album is an old-fashioned concept as well, but to listen to it from start to finish, I think it works really, really well because of... I suppose what we've just been talking about all the song the songs are designed to be orchestrated into each other and actually it doesn't fall to digital silence through the album so everything overlaps and um, we're very conscious of the sequencing of the album from that point of view so I suppose um, and there's I'd say it's about 65% singing 35% uh, instrumentation so um, whereas the other albums would have been a lot more sung Mm. Uh, so I think it, it just to me it works really well uh, that the flow between the songs you know works as well as we had envisaged and maybe something like you know we, we often talk about Brian Eno's um, Another Green World 
albums like that which have singing and instrumentation on them they just flow along and that would be sort of something that, uh, that we uh, we were looking for in this record and yeah. I think we've achieved it I think I hope I think so yeah I think yeah I think you're right Cormac I think there was a lot more thought put into it as a sonic entity maybe than the, than the last album you know thematically we've tried to make it into uh, create linkage between the songs um, but but sonically in terms of the soundscape you know there was we, we recorded it completely differently to the first two albums um, where we it was like a, almost like an audio file approach to recording in pristine quality onto two inch tape this time we decided you know we wanted to record the bass the foundation of the album live as a band in a room in, in Herbert Place studio um, with with mics open so that we can pick up just the um, just that feel of a band playing a song together yeah. and then taking those elements that Cormac spoke about you know synths, drones um, digital effects and so forth and layering those on top of that very um, I guess very organic, um, basic uh, sound of the band playing together. So I guess, yeah, we put a lot of lot more thought and deliberation because I guess we weren't, we didn't have a, uh, you know, a, a very experienced professional producer uh, who, who who called the shots on the album. We've, we've, it's very much self-produced, um, but yeah. we did have a very clear idea of the kind of aesthetic that we were looking for. Um, and I think when we when I listen back to it, I think that's very evident. You know, there is there is that uniformity in terms of the, 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 the sonic um, character of the album but then it's, 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 it's sprinkled with lots of diverse elements as you go through it to try to hold the attention It's, it's important yeah. to say, you know, to give credit to James Darkin as well who's the engineer and helped produce a lot of the tracks and mm. really with James you know, working with James rather than working with Daniel was it, was it, there was a, diff- a big difference in the style that they brought to the, to yeah. the album and he really allowed us to, to to, to do all that he set the place up yeah. to suit us and he really was a whiz at the at the at the digital uh, editing side and things like that so we really yeah. brought a lot to the album I think yeah and he's you know, you know a, he, a he, more modern he's a musician himself yeah he's, yeah he's released a couple of uh, kind of industrial electronic albums um, so he brought a, an aesthetic or a, yeah. I guess a, an ability with um, with digital um, mixing and effects that probably would have been alien to us, to be honest. So that that that, that helped to give it give it a color that mm-hmm. it may not otherwise have had. And after all of the, I suppose, the tumult that you've had with labels over the years, things happening and in industry models shifting, um, it's third time to the charm. Uh, this time around for another label. This time with Jar du Nord. Maybe talk to us a little bit about how you got in touch this time around. What the deal is. I know earlier we were talking about a 180 gram vinyl release and the success of the vinyl revival kind of impacting on how pre-orders have been taken up for this record. Mm. Um, yeah, how did they come together and what have they been like to work with thus far? Uh, again, you know, this involved us approaching a number of labels, and um, again, we got some good interest. And it was Ian Button who runs the the label, uh, Gardenor. The label was set up um, really to release uh, music by friends of his in London, and and he has distribution through the UK. And you know he really liked what we were doing and uh, offered to put it out. He he's been mixed up in uh, bands like State, State River Widening, which is a post rock band of the um, about fifteen years ago. Uh, Kieran Phelan is another person he puts out. So um, they, they've got a very good following of, of the type of music that he puts out. So we're delighted when he wanted to put out the, the album because it gives us uh, 
reach into the UK uh, a bit more than we would have had. Yeah, yeah, I think yeah. we we were prepared to probably go our own and yeah. do a self-release if, if necessary. But yeah, it was, it was great to get that extra oomph that you get from from a label. Um, I think probably it is easier to do a self-release now than it probably was maybe 10 years ago with yeah. the second album. Um, but yeah, it, as Cormac said, yeah, having that increased level of exposure through a UK record label, just in terms of the contacts, contacts that they've got with the, with the various media outlets and blogs and uh, podcasts and so forth in the UK is, is very welcome. Um, they haven't had exposure into Ireland really as such, I think. Not really. Um, you know, so we're so helping kind of them to push that thing, piece. maybe. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think we'll have to give them some exposure as well, um, probably here, um, which you know, which which they're welcoming. Um, so, so yeah, I think it's it's a nice symbiotic relationship, and it certainly is working well for us yeah. so far. Does that mean there's going to be another incursion into the UK soon? Yeah, well, certainly in terms of release, absolutely. In terms of uh, playing, then probably, um, you know, we don't have anything penciled in as yet. We're just focusing on Ireland, really, um, at the moment. But, you know, we've already had, you know, we've a bit of a fan base in the UK uh, and online on our social media and so forth. They've heard about the album. They're looking forward to it. So, yeah, I think at some stage it will be good to get mm. get back over, maybe just play a London show. When we come back, we'll talk about your upcoming slate of gigs, including a number of gigs around Cork. But first, we're going to go back to some more tunes. A double dose of Cork psychedelia. First off, we have The Altered Hours with Over the Void, taken from their On My Tongue EP. We also have Ghost King is Dead with Deflector. Bedroom pop that has really done well online as a result of its release via Cork Bedroom Pop Collective, Hausu, but also having been released on tape recently as part of his This Is Doubt EP, which received a limited release on the format uh, during the course of the Hausu night that was at Cypress Avenue just a couple of weeks ago. But first, this is the Altered Hours with Over the Void here on Red on Red.
Ghost King is Dead with Deflector, available now across all streaming services via Cork Bedroom Pop Collective House 2 Records. This is Red on Red, Cork's new music podcast. We're still joined in studio by Cork Old Folk Outfit, Boa Morte, Cormac, Bill. The album is all confirmed. It's good to go on September 27th and you have a rake of gigs coming up to help mark the occasion. Yeah, yeah, we've got a got a number of gigs, I guess, to be announced, but we've got some that are, some that are confirmed over the next month or so. Uh, starting off in the Glucksman Gallery in, in in Cork, which we're really looking forward to on September 20th. Um, so we'll be, you know, we, we're going to have a full band there with strings, with synths, with the whole lot. So it's going to be a big sound um, in a big square box, which will be interesting. But we're, we're going to have to pay a lot, of t- a lot of attention to the sound of that one. Um, so that's at 8pm on Culture Night on September 20th. Um, we're back after the release then playing in the Roundy um, on October the 19th, actually, in the Roundy inside in town. Uh, so working with uh, Jimmy and the guys in there to get that gig together. And then we're playing in Dublin in Barbello, uh, on, which was previously the lower deck in Portobello, a really nice venue, on October the 24th. Um, so they're confirmed. We've got some other gigs, as I said, to be confirmed over the next week or so. So people can catch up on those, I guess, at boamorte.com. We've also got our Twitter, Twitter site. People will find us there. Uh, slightly less active Facebook site, but we've, we're, we're on all the, ma- the major um, media channels, I guess. You also have your new single, Deep Is Deeper, which is now streaming on uh, the front end of boamorte.com, linking out to the Bandcamp pre-order, where physicals as well as digitals can be pre-ordered uh, of the new record before there was air, available via Gardenor Records. How are you feeling about how pre-orders have been taken up? Yeah, really good so far. Um, you know, it's, it's, it, it's our first time doing a pre-order type of setup on Bandcamp. Um, it's going really, really well. It's probably far exceeding any, ex- any expectations that we would have had. As I said earlier, 
what's kind of amazing us as well is just the proportion of vinyl, which is 80% to uh, CD, which is about 10% to digital, which is 10%. That, that'll probably shift a bit maybe after, after release itself. But right now, the early, um, the early pre-ordering people are, are ordering primarily vinyl, which is interesting. Yeah, and I suppose you do, you do get a download code with the vinyl as well. Of course. For that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Are you over the line, do you think, with final yet? Yeah, yeah, it's it's getting towards that, uh, probably quicker than we would have anticipated. Um, so wouldn't say we're quite there yet, but we're, we're well on the road and certainly uh, ahead of where we would have thought we would be, yeah. That's all for this week's episode of Red on Red, Cork's new music podcast from Red FM and redextra.ie. Thank you very much to Cormac and Bill of Boa Morte for joining us in studio this episode. Thank you. Thank you, Mike. And thank you very much for listening. If you like what you're hearing, please take the time to subscribe and leave us a review on Apple and Google Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Every subscribe, every rate, every social media share helps us spread the word of DIY music in Cork City. Make sure to check out the artists featured online or at an upcoming gig. And if you'd like more Irish tunes, please be sure to listen into Green on Red on Sunday nights with Alan O'Donovan for the best of all that is Irish on Cork's Red FM. 104 to 106. We mentioned the new single, Deep is Deeper, uh, which is available now for immediate download if you make a digital pre-order via bandcamp.com, via frampoamorteband.com. But we're going to give people just a listen to it here. Maybe talk to us a little bit about the writing in particular of this tune and how it came together. Uh, This is is very much a band song. So the the foundation of the song is really the four of us playing uh, in the room. It's mostly live, the, the, Mm. the track. And then it sort of fades out to an interesting uh, ending that uh, I'll leave you listen to uh, uh, as we play out the track. We're going to hear from it right now. This is Boa Morte with Deep Is Deeper. This has been Red on Red. And we'll talk to you next week.
Red on Red.